Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday morning again, but not super early, so hopefully everybody had enough time to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, Jens Jacob Christensen said, after watching the new Macho Nacho video, they were wondering if it could be possible in the future to add RetroNAS support to the Pico boot if using a Pi Pico W. Um, so there's some back and forth about this. The direct answer is probably not because of the way it's installed. However, respectfully, that's kind of a closed-minded way to look at things. I love to look outside the box for stuff like this. So while it might not be possible in its current form to load ROMs directly from it, you might be able to do something like um, either through your GameCube or through a web interface on your computer, copy files from your RetroNAS to the SD to SP2. That seems like it's at least plausible. Probably be too slow to stream, but at least that way you could select your game. It might take a minute to load because you're copying it over Wi-Fi, and then it's like it's loading locally. Now, this is all speculation, by the way, so any uh, any GameCube developers, don't get mad at me here. I just, these are always the conversations I have sitting in the dev room for my whole life, pretty much, that start out as like, all right, Bob, that's not possible. And by the end of the session, it's usually like, well, you know, we could probably do. So that's kind of just what I'm doing here, spitballing ideas. Of course, the installation could be done a little bit differently, so you might be able to do something like solder a flex cable over the CD-ROM drive pins and access it that way, so you'd switch back and forth. It would be a much more complicated install, kind of like the original first run of GC Dual installs, but I'm not sure if that would be the most efficient way to do it. So while I have no problem speculating based on, I don't know, my whole life's worth of dev work, I'm definitely going to leave the real answer to that up to the people who actually know what they're doing on the GameCube. But I would love to see that. In fact, two specific things I would really love to see is support for loading ROMs as well as keeping the original drive, which PicoBoot supports, as well as pretty much every option other than GC Duel. Love GC Duel, by the way, but that for me personally is the option for people with multiple GameCubes or people with dead drives in their GameCube. Um, and of course, the the next thing I would like to see is loading over the over RetroNAS or something over the network, just because I really do think as time goes on and more people start to realize what you could do with that, the more people will want to. And I kind of knew when I launched the RetroNAS video. I saw all the comments from, you know, the so-called IT people of, this is dumb, I could just set up this and shut up to share and do the same thing. And I was just smiling reading those because I knew they'd come around, and a lot of them did. A lot of them were starting to realize, like, oh, it's not just about this, it's about putting this all together, and now you have that feature. So, yeah, the two features that I would love to see going forward for any optical drive emulator, mod chip, whatever, is keeping the original drive and loading over the internet, or, or over your own personal network, not over the internet, sorry. But yeah, so it was a very long way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> Next up, Alucard T. Capulet said they have a set of HD Retrovision Genesis cables that they use with everything there is an adapter for, and being a retro streamer, they find themselves plugging it in and unplugging it from the many adapters and the tower of power damn near daily. 
They're concerned that this may cause damage over time to either the consoles, the cables, and or the adapters. Is this something I need to worry about, or should I get some sort of Genesis 2 extension cable to take the wear and tear if one even exists? Um, so that's an excellent question. I use the cables that way as well, because remember, I am a tester more than a gamer, like probably 50 to 1. So every time I plug in a console, I'm plugging the cables in, you know, I'm plugging the power connections in, and... I've been doing it for quite a few years, and I, while I have rotated out consoles, I've never damaged one. Now, I've bent the pins on the HD retrovision cables because I put it in upside down or something, and then you got to get a pair of tweezers to bend them all back in place. But other than that, I've never damaged anything. Although, anytime you plug something into something else, it is very slowly wearing it down. Now, it might take thousands upon thousands of plugs in order to actually ruin it, but... That's an excellent question. So the good news is for all of the other things that you're talking about, if you have your HD retrofission Genesis cables and then you use the pigtail adapters for Saturn, Neo Geo, PlayStation 1, you're good to go there. Worst comes to worst, you're wearing down the HD retrovisions, which you could just get another pair. Um, you're not ruining your consoles or anything else. The only one that would be an issue with is your Genesis. So if you didn't have a tower of power, I would say consider just buying a second set of Genesis cables and leaving it plugged in forever. But for me personally, I never leave the Tower of Power fully assembled. I'm always leaving the 32X off unless I specifically want to play a 32X game or unless I'm demoing somebody how the CXA encoder on a 32X has better composite video than the one in the Genesis one. But that's really it. So that's pretty much up to you. Uh, you can figure out which one fits your fits your setup the best, but ordering a custom or making a custom pigtail for a Genesis 2 style connector like that might very well cost almost as much as another, another set of HD retrovisions, so maybe that's kind of the best way to go about doing this. Um, alternatively, too, you could have your Tower of Power always assembled, and then you could pick up something like... Uh, if you're a modder, you could do a Genesis 3 with a triple bypass. Those are amazing, and that way you could get pretty much everything else, so you could just have, you know, a bunch of stuff left plugged in at once. But, I, you know, I, I think I would kind of just figure out what's your biggest concern. Are you one of the few people that has a 32X that starts up every time you power it on? Maybe just leave your Genesis cables plugged in just to not chance anything and buy another one. Or is, you know, does it not really matter? And you were just asking the question more from a nerd point of view, which I always appreciate, of course. If that's the case, I would just keep doing what you're doing and just expect that at some point, probably one of the cables is going to wear out and you're going to have to pick up another one. But not no solid advice for that one, just kind of suggestions for you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jacob Rice wants to know if I have any repair information on the GameCube WaveBird controller and receiver. And I don't have anything. I don't remember ever even using one. Or if I did, it was only for a few seconds somewhere, you know, at some other location. Certainly one's never passed through any of the places I've lived or worked. So I really don't have any info on that for you. So I would really kind of just check around different GameCube communities and especially anything like the Smash communities, the speedrunning communities, because they're the ones that controllers matter so much. So they're probably going to have some of the best info on there. And if you do find good info on it, please consider adding it to the wiki just to make it easier for other people to find (coughs) so you don't have to ask these questions at all in the future. Jeff Cullop said they found a strange SNES cart. It's Super Drift Out by Visco Games, which was released in Japan only, and a North American release was planned but never surfaced. There's some pages online that discuss rarity and that it exists, and they show that the only difference with the game is that it defaults to miles per hour versus kilometers an hour, and two of the car names are different on the prototype. They popped the game into their SNES, and voila, two cars with different names, and uh, starting the game netted their speedometer in miles per hour. Do they have a -a one-of-a-kind rarity or a retro tinkerer's very good work, and how could they tell? They opened up the case and found a Super Famicom board with the EEPROM removed, and another daughter board soldered to the back. The EEPROM has the word Drift K-O-K-L written directly on top of the chip in silver pen. So that's interesting. That could go either way. Um... You know, I would like to think that you found the rare, unreleased North American version. Could just be a ROM hack. But the people that you want to talk to are Hidden Palace or Forest of Illusion, or I think they're all kind of affiliated with each other. I've worked with them before. They were super nice. Uh, They were very easy to talk to. And I I highly recommend going through them to see if this is legit, if this is something that could be dumped. If you need any help, DM me. I will take care of it. Uh, and, and make the introductions or even just do it for you if you like. But I think the the things that you would want to really do is first dump the cart, which I have one of those Sani cart readers, uh, so I could do that for you. So could them, by the way, <laughs> both of those teams that probably have 20 of those things. Um, so you want to dump the ROM to see, and then you're going to want to take really good pictures of everything uh, and then kind of go from there. And then it'll probably end up being written up on Hidden Palace or something like that. So if you need any help getting that done, just contact me directly. But it's worth looking into because even if they're even if it's the identical game, but with only those few changes, it's neat. It's a cool piece of history. And if it's if it's in your position, possession, position, <laughs> sharp this morning, huh? <laughs> if it's in your possession, might as well just share it for the world to see and, and have it kind of checked out. So let me know if you need any help with that or if not, just go directly to those two places. And uh, they're really experts in it. SNES Central, Evan, of course, is another another great resource for that. So I would talk to pretty much any one of them and kind of see what you got. And hopefully you have something weird and rare. James Mann wants to know, after upgrading to a Mr. FPGA, where would be the best place to sell their analog Super NT, Mega SG, and FX Pack Pro and Mega SD? Um, you know, wherever you're most comfortable selling it, Facebook Marketplace, eBay, they're all good and terrible at the same time. But do you really want to? Because if you do, cool. Uh, but let's just assume you're on the fence about this just for the sake of conversation here. 
so many times since I've started retro RGB and since I started talking about ROM carts. So many times I see people say something like, oh, I don't need any of these originals anymore. Let me make some money and get rid of them. Or I don't need any of my, you know, extra stuff anymore. Almost every one of those people ends up regretting it. So I love the Mr. by the way. It's absolutely zero, you know, slight towards the Mr. project. However, there is absolutely something to be said about plugging in a cartridge, pressing power, and watching it all come up. So in your case, if you have two recapped consoles, a Super Nintendo and a Genesis, and maybe you love the look of the original Jailbar Genesis for nostalgia, or maybe you triple bypassed it because you want the highest quality. So maybe in your setup, you have these amazing original consoles, and then you have the Mr. FPGA, and then you don't really need the other ones. That I understand, and that's also not a disrespect to analog, it's just I totally get it. Why would you, you know, you wouldn't really need three of them unless you're crazy and do, you know, comparison shots and stuff like I do, but, so I get it. Um, I just want to put that out there because even if you own a Mr. and you have an original SNES that you love, are you really going to sell the FX Pack Pro because what if you wanted to use something on original hardware? What if there was a ROM hack or something? So... You know, I, I don't mean to discourage you to sell them. I just wanted to add the other side of that just because of how many times I've seen people really sad that they thought that they were, oh, I'm just going to make a bunch of money. I don't need this stuff anymore. And then a year later, everything's higher in price and they wish they never sold it to begin with. So, uh, you know, to answer your question directly, sell it wherever you're most comfortable selling stuff. Um, none of them are perfect. Uh, it, but other than that, just really make sure that you want to sell them because as awesome as the Mr. is, the analog Super NT and Mega SG offer something that you'll never get from the Mr. Just plugging in your cart and your controller and just starting the game. Light gun games, whatever, they all just work. There's no configuration. There's nothing else. So I like them both. I sold my analog consoles just because I needed that money to fund other projects that I was working on. Uh, if I was a rich YouTuber making 20 grand a month, like a lot of these crazy people I see, I would have kept everything and they would have all been either displayed nicely or packed neatly. I would have kept every single thing to make sure that I always have something to reference or go back to. But for me, it was just a trade-off. Do I leave these things in a box um, just waiting for the couple times a year I need to run a test on them, or do I sell it and use that money to fund other projects that we could all benefit from? This is a no-brainer for me personally, but I'm more of a dev than a gamer, I guess. So, sorry to ramble on, but I just I wanted to add those perspectives just in case. Lopo has an interesting issue. They've wanted to play every Final Fantasy game for the first time, awesome, that's, a, that's kind of a big undertaking, but they hit a snag when they got to the PlayStation 1. The games won't load at very specific points. In Final Fantasy VII, it froze near the end of Disc 2 when you go to the Temple of the Ancients and see the water projection, specifically at the point where an FMV plays on a water effect with the player characters present. They went through Final Fantasy VIII without incident and through the beginning of IX when they ran into a similar issue. This time the game would stay at the black loading screen before the two boss fights in Gargon Ru. Sorry, I've never played any of the Final Fantasy games, so these names are first time reading them for me. The first one, they flipped over their PS1, which was probably stupid on their part, but it's what GameFAQs told them, and it worked for Final Fantasy VII at the first boss. Now, that is a trick that you could sometimes use. When they got to the second boss, after escaping the castle, it would not proceed on their PS1 no matter what. At first, they thought it was the discs, so they had them resurfaced, but that didn't work. 
Then they thought it might be the PS1's disc reader. I think you mean the CD-ROM assembly or laser. When the PS1 PS1 runs perfectly with every other game, even the games they're having issues with. It just seems that uh, to push what the PS1 can do, that's when it's having issues. So when it's heavily loading off of FMVs and stuff like that. They bought a new disc reader off Amazon without checking reviews, which were mixed, but mostly came with a warning that they didn't work. And it didn't work. Uh, It booted the game, but whenever they tried running their save files, it refused to load with a similar black screen. So um, if you're talking about disc reader as CD-ROM assembly or laser or anything like that, they're getting harder to track down. So I would try to look through, um, you know, any like console5.com, any of the stores that are known for selling quality replacement parts and try to find them there. Also, is your PlayStation mod chipped? Because I'm vaguely remembering Final Fantasy games, or at least one of them, having an issue if your console is chipped. So, you know, this is one of those weird times where it's like, where do you spend your time and your money? Do you go hunting down full CD-ROM assemblies or another PlayStation, possibly? Or do you go for the optical drive emulator route? Or do you try to pick up a mister? At the end of the day, you got to figure out what's best for your budget and most importantly for your total solution. So if your goal is to take your childhood PS1, I'm just making this up. I don't know if this is your childhood console or not, but if your goal is to take your childhood PS1 and play through these games that you always wanted to, spend the time and spend the money to refurbish it. Find a modder that could recap it for you. Find a modder with a scope that could calibrate the laser. It's not easy, so if you've never done that before, it's not something I would jump right into. Um, Look into getting a full laser assembly and have everything else working. Calibration of the laser is something that's important too, so that's that could explain a like a wearing a worn out laser could read some things but not others. So that's something to consider, but that could get costly, especially if you're sending it out to a modder to have it done by a pro. Of course, just picking up another PlayStation 1 is hit or miss. Maybe everything will work perfect. Maybe you'll run into the same issues. But depending on what you stumble across, that might actually be the easiest route. And also, you know, installing an optical drive emulator, buying a mister instead, any one of those things are also options. But you have to just ask, what is the end goal? And what are the advantages and disadvantages for you? If you're looking for a completely original experience, obviously ODEs and FPGAs are not the way to go. But, you know, if you love PlayStation 1 and that's the only retro console you care about, an ODE might be a pretty good idea. Especially because I think Will's console mods is still working on the, uh, it's the PlayStation Switcher. So same as their Saturn Switcher, where you could keep both the ODE and the original optical drive, that might really be something that's worthwhile to you. But if on the flip side, if your goal is to go through a bunch of different games on a bunch of different retro consoles, picking up a mister might really be the most cost-effective way to go about it. So you got to decide what your goals are, what your budget is, and what the total solution is. But to answer your question directly, you could pick up another CD-ROM assembly or laser, but without knowing how to calibrate it, that could be why a lot of these things that you pick up from Amazon don't work because it's not pre-calibrated. You can't just plug it in. You have to set everything up and make sure that it's working. So that could work, but you're really going to have to think about it more from a total solution point of view before you move forward. 
couple of things from Oliver Claire. They just saw my post about the Behar Brothers Xbox HDMI and component box, and it got them thinking. Right now, they have three possible ways to connect up their original Xbox to their permanent setup, which is dual output to a 4K flat panel and an older consumer-grade CRT with SCART inputs, uh, with the possibility of working a PVM into the mix somewhere down the line. And they were wondering which option I think would be optimal and why. Keep their original Xbox stock and output via Microsoft's original component box and HD retrovision cables to a G-Comp switch, which then dual outputs off to a Tink 5X to their 4K TV, as well as Mike's Comp to RGB, which allows connection to the old CRT. Mod the Xbox with an Xbox HD Plus and split off the HDMI signal between the 4K TV and a downscaling solution for the older CRT, or pre-order the Behar Brothers box, HDMI signal straight into the 4K TV, component signal to the comp to RGB, which goes to the older CRT. Um, They understand they're all great solutions, just wondering if you have a preference and why. Well, first, Oliver, thanks for typing all that out, because that's exactly what I would have tried to articulate in the answer, but I probably would have had to take three or four takes to get it right. So typing all that out sets the stage to exactly what I was going to say anyway. For your particular solution, because you already have a RetroTINK 5X, option one, just go component video to the G-Comp, and then that way the TINK 5X can de-interlace any of the 480i games that are uh, stuck at 480i. It could also scale the 480p and 720p games to 1080 or 1440, depending on what your TV is compatible with all while at the same time sending the other one to your CRTs. So you'd obviously have to set it to 480i unless you have a multi-sync CRT, but that's just a quick setting in the Xbox menu and you have a choice between both. Or if for whatever reason you wanted to stream and play on the CRT, set it to 480i, but now the Tink 5X de-interlaces for you so you don't have to worry about any of that for your streams. The Xbox HD Plus is absolutely amazing. You get a pure digital-to-digital signal. And if you had owned the Morph or the upcoming Tink 4K, which when I say upcoming, it could be 2024. Remember, we're in a massive part shortage. Um, But if you had one of those, that might be a little different because now you're going digital-to-digital. You could still set the Xbox to 480i, and then you're still using your scaler to scale that digital signal. So that would definitely work. Uh, And same with the Behar Brothers box. Uh, That would be the same situation of, you know, just sending a digital signal over to your TV if you wanted to. Um, But, you know, as much as I'm really excited for the Exodusa, I think that's how you say it. um, I think for your specific setup, that would be the last choice because while it's great and I'm definitely, I already ordered one and I'm looking forward to testing it, in your particular setup, having digital to digital or just component video would be better. So uh, hopefully that puts things into perspective. Hopefully all of that made sense. Um, You know, if you have any other questions, let me know. I didn't mean to, hopefully that came out as positive to all three of those. Cause like you said, they're all great solutions. I just think for you personally, sticking with component is probably the way to go for now. And then if you ever upgrade to a scaler that has an HDMI input, then go to the internal HDMI solution. YROC wants to know how they'd go about repairing a controller that doesn't have a lot of information about it online. They have a lot of nostalgia for the Mad Cats N64 controller, but when they searched it in Google searches of how to repair it, most of what they found just said to get an original controller. That's useless, isn't it? Um, 
So there's a few things that you could go about doing. First and foremost, clean it. Take it apart uh, carefully. You know, if you have to take pictures to remember where everything went, that's always a good thing to do that I do all the time. Take the whole thing apart. Clean the crap out of the plastics. I have that, uh, you know, clean your controllers and, uh, and consoles video that is one of the first YouTube videos I ever did. I still use it to this day. Just use a softer bristled brush. You don't have to worry about scratching. People lose their minds in the comments still about that. I don't know how you could make that mistake from the video. It's obviously a softer brush, but whatever. But clean the hell out of it. Clean the pads too, the, the rubber pads that are inside that make the connections. And then if the PCBs are dirty, clean those with a little bit of isopropyl and a Q-tip or a, a like an electronics brush, <clears throat> which are like toothbrushes, but not... So you could use an old toothbrush, but... I don't like that. It just freaks me out. Looking at my old toothbrush dipped in, you know, gunk on a board. I use the electronic brush. So clean it, definitely. Uh, and even clean the controller cable. Uh, I show in the video how gross it is when you run a paper towel down a controller cable. The years of gunk and dust and whatever else on it. And then put it back together and see where you're at. Many times you'll have a marked improvement. Other times it'll be very clean and equally as crappy. So then you have to start looking for things like replacement rubber pads. Will you get lucky and will ones that are in basic N64 controller repair kits work? Um, that is certainly the case for like NES aftermarket controllers. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Uh, and if not, how else would you go about doing it? Can you make your own? Can you try to figure out a way to to make the connections easier? And that's when you really have to just dig into general controller repair. And that, once you get into like the expert general repair, when I say general, I mean like any controller from any console ever, that's when you start to get into more of like the expert modding thing. Because what do you do at that point? Do you use a fiberglass pen to make the connections easier? Uh, which I don't recommend just doing, by the way. That's This is something you got to just, you know, you have to take a look at. Do you try to make your own pads? Do you try to, <clears throat> excuse me, repurpose from others? There's a lot of things that you could probably do that might work. But that's where you just need to talk to controller experts. So once again, anytime you, you have controller issues, I would kind of look into speedrunning and fighting communities because controllers matter pretty much the most for them. Any kind of competitive gaming, really. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, you're going to get a lot of people that say that's dumb just buy an original. And, you know, that sucks. I don't like that at all. That's not your question and that's not the right answer. But hopefully you'll have an expert out there that's patient enough to help you with that. Richard Webster has a question about analog to digital converters, specifically component video to HDMI converters and black levels. They're using the Porter Comp to HDMI, and they're wondering what the TV black level should be set to, or what sort of RGB range is the device outputting. Or is it different for each console? Specifically, they're checking for Wii and PS2, but they suppose this may apply to any console with native component output. So I'm going to start out with a cop-out answer that should get you your solution and then talk a little bit more about it. Try to fire up any kind of test pattern, color bars, whatever, um, you know, whether it's a DVD via the PS2 or the 240p test suite on the Wii, fire those up and then change on your TV between full and limited range color and see what looks proper uh, to your eyes. It should be pretty obvious because one will look more washed out or weird or something like that. So that would be the easiest way to handle it on a per console basis. 
Now, things get confusing when you start talking about general terms for this, because not all of those ADCs are the same. And unfortunately, you could buy three of the exact same ones from the same link and could possibly get different chips in it. Just like the PAL to NTSC converter I talked about yesterday with uh, Lewis on the live stream and the posts I did. So it's, it's hard to give a general recommendation. And there should be some things about it that should be pretty standard. Like, uh, you know, component video over HDMI should always be in this color space. And, you know, VGA to HDMI should always be in this one. But it doesn't usually, I shouldn't say that, it doesn't always end up so cut and dry. And some converters just do a way better job at that than others. Some crush black levels, some just send the video out at all different types of voltages and stuff. Not unsafe voltages, but just meaning that the RGB colors will never be truly even. And that's why I try to stick to converters that I've used before. But just like I always talk about when you're using these generic boards, if you buy 20 of them, 15 might be the same and five might be who knows what. So uh, it's it's really hard to kind of just say for sure what's the best or, or not, unless you're buying like a higher end unit. And that's why I do really hope the community will swing around and make these ADCs. And yeah, they're going to be expensive. They might be up to a hundred bucks because they will be small quantities. Um, and you know, they'll have everything made with a lot more care than these giant factories do. But those would be specifically for people that don't want to have to ask these questions because a lot of us have jobs. We work our butts off and to spend 25 versus a hundred, you might actually prefer to spend the 100 because you don't want to have to spend an hour testing this stuff. You want to just buy it, plug it in, and never think about it ever. So I definitely think there's a market for ADCs and DACs that are made by the community, for the community, and you know just have to be at a premium to solve these exact issues. Um, so, you know, cop-out answer, test to see for yourself, uh, which is a fair answer, too. That, that should be something that works. And if you can't get a good uh, picture, maybe your DAC isn't the best one. So return it to Amazon and pick up another. Uh, but moving forward, I would love to see community made stuff. A couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, they want to know what happened with whatnot. And I don't really want to go into that until I tell the whole story with somebody that was on the opposite side of it. But I will say this, you mentioned were there a lot of scammers or something like that. I have never had a bad experience buying from somebody on whatnot. One of them could have done a better job packing, but they didn't do a bad job. None of the th purchases I made ended up in in a bad experience overall. Also, every single person that hung out in the live streams was awesome, and I appreciate every one of you. Those were a blast. I feel like like it was all a group of us, a bunch of curious nerds jumping in. And, you know, some people bought stuff, some people didn't. That didn't really matter to me. I was just there to have fun and to try to bridge some gaps together because I'm not a seller. I'm not somebody that would have been on that platform weekly or biweekly selling tons of stuff. I was going to do a couple times a month and try to help things out. But I feel like I kind of got the short end of the stick on that one. But once again, I want to be able to describe the whole thing because the rep that I talked to is a member of the gaming community and a really nice person. So I don't think anybody intentionally set out to screw me over, but I'm pretty sure I get screwed hard and to the point where I'm probably never going to do anything like that again, um, which sucks because there's a lot of good companies out there I'd like to work with, but they really kind of ruined it for me. Um, second question, they're curious about the 4K Gamer Pro. 
any developments on nearest neighbor scaling? And do I think, uh, what do I think of it for more modern 3D games like the PS3 or Switch? Uh, so first, I don't think they're going to go down the nearest neighbor route. I would, If you're going to buy it, I would buy it expecting to get exactly what I showed in the review and nothing else. Um, and it kind of makes sense, too, because are they going to spend a lot of time and money developing a new mode that may or may not bring them more sales? I get it. I also, uh, you know, It was designed for things like the Switch and 1080p devices, not retro. So I, I understand their point of view. But um, So I would buy it, if you do buy it, expecting exactly what I already showed. As for more modern 3D games, for me personally, you, I, I think you need to make a decision. Do you want to, do you want your 3D graphics more sharp or more smooth? Because the 4K Gamer Pro is like the ying to the M Cables gang or some crap like that. For me personally, I like to smooth most 3D graphics. Now, the examples that I showed, like the um, uh, Daytona and Virtua Racing and stuff like that, looked really awesome sharp scaled. So basically just kind of visualize how many games do you think would do better sharp than they would smooth? If you have enough to justify the $150 price point, grab it. And if not, zero disrespect to the company PhotoFast, but don't get it. <laughs> it's really just preference. Just know that it doesn't add any lag and, you know, it seems to work fine other than that. Um, or other than the, you know, not nearest neighbor thing. So, uh, also, lastly, as a curiosity, what happens to review units you get sent to make videos on after the review is up? Do you always send them back? What about prototypes? Do you just have boxes of beta devices and storage? Bet there's some fun stories there. Yeah, there's a bunch of great stories. Um, so it depends. If it's a friend, if it's somebody that I've worked with before, generally speaking, they send me these betas so that not only do I do a video on it, but I keep it here, and if they run into any issues, which always happens after the first month or so of launch, I'll get a text to the, you know, in the middle of the night, hey, when you wake up, could you plug this into that and turn it upside down and see if you can reproduce this problem? So it's more on the beta test side of things um, with friends that I, I keep them, but I don't consider that stuff mine, like especially prototypes. I consider it theirs, uh, and I would not really go to sell those, especially if it's a prototype that's not matching an official, you know, production unit, because then if that gets out in the wild, it confuses things. And even if the person said, go ahead and sell it if you don't need it, I, I wouldn't. I would either send it back to them or I would give it to a different friend that completely understood what it is that they're getting. This is a prototype, keep it secret, you know, whatever else. Um, so that's kind of on the friend side of things. But also, regardless of if it's a friend or if it's anybody else, one of the things that I always offer to do is send it on to the next reviewer whenever it is that I'm done. So that's and that's something that I really think is important for smaller companies because you can't be like analog where you send a hundred people for you know for each of whatever you're selling each a different color hoping they'll give it a good review uh, they'd actually do that which is strange to me but that's a lot of money thrown away so I think smaller companies really need to capitalize on this whole sharing stuff. And yeah, you know, who gets it first, who gets their video out, who does the better video. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's some kind of politics that I don't like to get into. But what I would say is that smaller companies really should kind of capitalize on that. So send it to, like, if it's something that you think I would be an expert in, send it to me. I'll do my video on it, prepare it, and not launch it send the product to the next person and we all have like an embargo date and that way we can give feedback we can get tests uh test data in before it goes public 
I like that. I think that's a really good way to do things. And that's stuff I've done before. But there's also stuff, especially from the bigger companies, where if there's no contract, it's always implied that it's mine to keep. And that's one that I should probably jump on and and have some kind of written thing that I always just kind of put in place for that. Because like Avermedia sent me the bolt right right at lockdown, actually. So I wasn't able to go anywhere to get it tested or anything like that. But always as part of the contract was sending it back to them, which is cool. I have no preference either way. Um, And other times, like with the 4K Gamer Pro, there was no contract. They just sent it to me. And I assumed that it was just mine to keep. And since it is a production version, maybe if I'm broke, I'll sell it one day. I don't really know. But that is something that, you know, if you're a reviewer who gets sent products, you know, and I don't mean to be rude to anybody else, but only if you're somebody who does consistent reviews, do you have a policy? Do you have a written thing? Because I don't want to get into ever accidentally get into a, a thing where I was sold something that I wasn't supposed to, or I gave something away. Um, but that's that's something I probably got to work on. But for the most part, if it's a friend, it's either something that I keep and continuously beta test, or send back to them, or send to the next reviewer. If it's a bigger company, uh, very often they just tell me to keep it. But you know, uh, this is, that would result in a lot of junk that I don't need. So I like to give those away to other people that might need them, give them to other reviewers, just sell them if it, depending on what it is. Um, but you know, a lot of people have a lot of thoughts on that and that's fine. You're all welcome to your opinion, but the people that, uh, the only people who whose opinions mean nothing to me are those who say, because you got a free unit, it's a paid review. Yeah, so you gave me something that's worth 100 bucks and I spent 40 hours on it. No, that's not a paid review. If you think it is, you're nuts and you've never reviewed anything and probably don't have a job. So yeah, it's those are the only ones that I don't really care about. Everybody else, I, I always listen to their opinion, whether I agree or not, you know, I kind of take it in. So hopefully that sums up all of those things for you. Um, the only other thing I'll mention is I, I did like the 4K Gamer Pro a lot. Uh, it is not the same as just turning the sharpness up on your TV, but it's not for everybody. It's You really got to decide, do you want a sharp scale or a smooth scale, or does it not really matter to you at all? And all of those are totally fair answers. One last one from Oliver. They have a 4K 120 TV, and we're looking to get a switch or a receiver that also supports 4K 120, but they're significantly more expensive than ones that can only go up to 4K 60. So they were wondering, can they just get one receiver or switch or whatever to plug all of their 4K 60 stuff into, and then have another input on their TV or another switch that does 4K 120, but still run everything through their receiver for audio? And the answer is yes, Probably. And the reason I'm saying that is because Audio Return Channel, ARC, which is funny because ARC is an acronym for a few other things in the audio world, like auto room correction and stuff like that. But the Audio Return Channel that most TVs from 2015 on probably support, when it works right, is perfect for this. You take your AV receiver and you take the output and make sure that it's connected to the ARC input of your TV. So when it's set to that input, so on mine, it's input two is the arc input. So when it's set to input two, I could see my receiver's on-screen menu, or if, if any video is run through that receiver, you could watch it on that input. However, if my TV is on input one or three and the receiver's on, audio is sent, the full uncompressed audio, well, 
no change in the audio, I shouldn't say uncompressed, um, is sent back down the HDMI port to the receiver. Now, when this works right, it's the perfect scenario because you're watching TV, you're just using your TV speakers, you turn on your amp, and then suddenly all of the audio goes through the receiver, but you're still controlling the audio through your TV's remote or your streaming box remote, whatever else, which is awesome. Then when you're done, if you have like an Apple TV where it powers off all devices, the receiver goes off as well. The only issue that I've had is some receivers don't work at all and other receivers go on with your setup. And I'm one of those people that only wants to turn my stereo on when it matters. I don't want to listen to videos like this where having a really high-end speaker setup makes zero difference. And in fact, might only just bring out details like my AC in the background. So I always like to start with TV audio, unless I'm really sitting down to watch a show or like a movie or one of those awesome DF retro comparisons where they do the sound channel as well. Then I want to turn on the receiver. So the problem is some of these ARC receivers turn on with the setup. Some of them don't. You have to manually turn them on, which I think is great. And some of them have settings to select between the two. So that's what I would start with. I would try to get a receiver that's rated as very good, that supports audio return channel, and try to read the manual and try to read some reviews to see how it works with the TV that you're going to buy or already own, as well as does it stay off? Does it come on? Is there a setting you can change? But that is the, when it works, that is the easiest way to do it. And it is awesome. It is just about as simple as you could possibly imagine. Now there's other things that, there's other workarounds. If you were talking about, um, like, let's say, let's say this was the opposite. Let's say you had a receiver that's awesome. Like I have an Anthem MRX 510 that I'm actually getting ready to sell if anybody wants it, but that is phenomenal for home theater. I love the way this amp sounds. It powers my speakers great, but it only supports up to 4K 30. So in that scenario, I got one of those downscaling HDMI switch or uh, splitters or switches that you feed it a 4K 60 signal and output number one to the TV is 4K 60 and output number two to the receiver, you flip the little switch on it uh, and it's 1080p 60 which means that you're still getting the full audio channel. It just, it's at an HDMI compliant spec for that receiver. And that's how I was very easily able to send all of the audio into that receiver that's not supposed to support 4K60. And then I just never really, I never really fed video sources through it. I just used a separate HDMI switch for everything. That worked awesome. That's, that's, well, it's kind of off screen, but that's exactly what I have set up there now. The problem is that I don't think they have any of those HDMI splitters that are 4K 120 that downscale to 4K 60 or 1080p 60 or something. I don't think that exists yet. I did want to mention it in case anybody's hearing this in the future and you know you see those. Or I guess also if you run into the scenario of an HDMI 1.4 receiver versus the newer ones. Um, so I wanted to put that out there as a possible future solution. But for you today, I would buy a receiver that supports audio return channel and just double check to make sure it'll work with your TV the way you would like it. Well, that's it for this time. 
All of the questions this week were just on Patreon, but if you have a question, ask anywhere it is that you support, wherever the latest Q&A post is. The way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an old post, and I also just really like scrolling through in real time, as you saw here. So any questions at all, wherever it is you support, just put it right in the Q&A post. And if I miss one, it's never intentional. It either came in after I started recording, uh, or Patreon deleted your question, which sometimes happens less lately than it has been but never skipped on purpose. So if you need anything, always DM me. But I do love doing these in the Q&A forum. I think it's fun to kind of talk these out. So thank you all very much for participating. And especially thank you to anybody who supports in any way possible, including just spreading the word, because it's hard to get noticed out there. And it's really nice to have the support that you all allow me to have. So thank you very much. And I'll see you next week.